Hi folks, Lauren here. This month's show had more than its fair share of audio issues. We've ironed out as many of them as possible, but the sound quality still isn't perfect. We still hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, we're talking about nutrition myths that just won't die. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at l-u-e-e-podcast.com. My name is Laura Creek Newman, and I will be your host tonight for once. And with me tonight is Lauren Bailey. Hi. Ashlyn Noble. Hello. And Jem Newman. Hi. Yeah, we said we were going to talk about security this month, but the thing is, we didn't really want to. So we're doing this instead. I, as always, am super excited to talk about nutrition. This is the one area where I'm like, yes, I can do this. I can just spout off stuff. It's it's very exciting to do that. And uh, it's been a while since I hosted a show. So I thought it would be good to bring that around. Nutrition myths is always something that I think we all encounter. And as I was thinking about topics to talk about today, I was going through the different things that people will hear commonly or that you'll see out there commonly. And I feel like a lot of them have actually woven into so many of our other episodes, even when it wasn't nutrition related, just because of the type of topic that we're talking about. And of course, everybody's got to eat. So everybody's got an opinion about food and and nutrition. So today we're going to talk about three different uh, nutrition topics, I guess, where we want to set the record straight a little bit more. And to start us off tonight is Ashlyn, and she's going to be talking about food expiry dates. But first, it is our 10th anniversary episode. (laughs) Holy moly, we made it to 10 years. (laughs) Seems unbelievable. Do you think our show has an expiry date? (laughs) <laughs> are we oh, are we quite beyond I, our I'm best becoming beyond? more and more certain of that every day <laughs> I mean I didn't think it was going to yeah, last a year 10 years ago this month we released our first episode of the podcast and it was not very good and so Halloween themed in November it. it was a very weird decision and every year I remember how weird that decision was it was not any of our decisions Correct. <laughs> we were not involved <laughs> Throw the past hosts under the bus there. <laughs> well, if any of you still listen. I was actually on that first episode, but uh, but I wasn't uh, a regular host until around episode 26 or so, I think. We are going to talk about expiry dates and why they're mostly garbage. And I thought that this would be a pretty easy and interesting segment to research. However, I've discovered I have very little interest in this subject. Mm. And also, the rules are very different between Canada and the U.S., which I didn't expect. Uh, I thought they would be largely the same, but they're not. Uh, The U.S. rules are way easier to make fun of, so let's start there. (laughs) First of all, there are no federal rules regarding labeling of foods as far as expiry dates or best before dates go. Uh, It's one of those things that they leave up to the states which is a garbage system. <laughs> like voting. Yeah, yeah, just like whether <laughs> your ballot counts or not. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that is a state issue. And there are, I think, nine states where there just isn't a state law. So nothing has to have a date on it for any reason, uh, nice. except baby formula. Baby formula is the one federally mandated one. Uh, And it is apparently because the nutrients in formula do break down over time and they want to make sure that you're not feeding your child something that is basically white water. Yeah. Well, and another thing, too, that probably makes a difference is it's a sole source nutrition, Mm -hmm. whereas everything else is part of a, a diet. So you can get your nutrients elsewhere if this one is, you know, is lacking in some way because it's broken down. And infants also have a much higher risk of infection mm-hmm. and and things like that. So my guess is that it's in a, like those are additional factors. So most states do have some law regarding labeling, but 
one of the big issues is that the words are so unclear and they're not mandated to use the same or even similar language. Uh, so use by, best before, freshest when, yada yada. The, uh, the other one is sell-by dates. So plenty of people out there believe that sell-by dates are the same as best-by dates and you should not consume something past its sell-by date. And a ton of food gets thrown out because of this, when in reality, sell-by dates are mostly to convince grocery stores to turn over their product at a reasonable rate. One of the big reports that I found that I'll be talking about during this segment is by uh, a group of grocery associations or associations of grocers, and one of their suggestions for reducing food waste because of sell-by dates is uh, to make the sell-by dates invisible to the consumer. So either by using like a UV light or something, or some barcode system that will prevent consumers from seeing the sell-by date. Okay. Sounds like something that, you know, <laughs> people like the health ranger, Mike Adams or whatever, will say, they're trying to hide the fact that they're selling you bad food. You know, I, I can imagine that kind of, uh, you know, the, the alt-health people would uh, find some reason to be mad about that. So lots of different words that mean vague things, and then another thing that doesn't mean what people think it means. These are the big problems. The best buy date is what the product manufacturer believes the lifespan of the food product will be before it starts losing either its nutritional value or its taste if the product is kept under ideal conditions and unopened. So even for me, that was a surprise. I thought that the best buy date would be like, if you open this tub of sour cream and use it, it should still be good yep. until this date. Apparently, mm -hmm. no. If you open something, all bets are off. <laughs> uh, so that makes me even more nervous for the future. Uh, because I am the kind of person who looks at an expiry date, and depending on the product, especially for things like dairy... If it's even, like, on the day or the day after the expiry date, I think, like, ugh, I don't know if I trust myself to, like, smell this correctly. <laughs> <laughs> the thing with dairy is that it's one of the things that is really obvious when it's gone off. Like, there are lots of other foods where it's less obvious, so... I, I'm gonna try and self-soothe. That's not the word, that's not the correct word for adults. I'm going to try and reassure myself... <laughs> Uh, because we watched uh, an Adam Ruins Everything episode about expiry dates, and I'm a little skeptical about this claim, let me just say that. But he said in his video, and he tends to have fairly well-researched stuff, that even if milk smells bad and is chunky, because it is pasteurized, what? it is still safe to drink. No! Right? That didn't sit right with no, me. No, it's pasteurized, it's not sterilized. Like, how do you think it got chunky and smells bad? Right? Like, that is bacterial growth. Yes! So. Well, it, like, it's a result of bacterial growth. It can get chunky and smell bad for other reasons, too. The, the, the bacterial growth causes an increase in, like... Acid. Acid production. Yeah. And the acid is what actually causes the curdling action. But there, there are other things that you can do to cause the acid. So you can make your own buttermilk or buy buttermilk or whatever, and it is chunkier and sour-smelling. Because it is soured mm -hmm. and you can make your own buttermilk. Well, I make soy buttermilk when I make pancakes uh, by just mixing in a little bit of lemon juice and then letting mm -hmm. it sit for You can a while. also make simple cheeses with just lemon juice. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that, that claim seems uh, dubious to me. Yeah, as well. I don't know. I don't know what this guy's talking about. No. <laughs> right? That seemed weird to me. And I that was basically the end of my research for the day. So I did not go and, and extra verify <laughs> that. So listeners, your homework assignment this month is... <laughs> No! Do not get foodborne illness! Please! I was gonna ask them to research it, not drink it. <laughs> Damn, Laura! I was gonna ask them to experiment in the kitchen! <laughs> <laughs> Alright, well, either of those assignments, go ahead. See what happens. <laughs> Expiry dates don't mean what you think they mean. And the sell-by dates are just for grocers. Now, how about... In Canada.
in Canada, if the durable life, which is a specific definition, is the anticipated amount of time an unopened food product will keep its freshness, taste, nutritional value, and other qualities when stored under appropriate conditions. So that's what we would think of as the time that the manufacturer would put on as the expiry date. If the food is supposed to last for more than 90 days, it doesn't need an expiry date. Oh. Uh, and that really surprised me. Yeah. It's funny because most shelf-stable foods are going to last far longer than 90 days, and they all have expiry dates, whereas the, like, dairy, of course, has expiry on it, but, like, your fruits and vegetables and things like that don't always have that. I assume it's just manufactured foods, right? Yeah, that really surprised me because even things like honey that I have in my cupboard have expiry dates on them. But until recently, I thought that every product had to have an expiry date. So if I found something in my fridge that didn't have an expiry date, I would be like, whoa, that's really sketchy. And I don't care how long it's been in there. I should throw it out. (laughs) (laughs) So now I know it doesn't need it if it's supposed to last a while. This is why Ashlyn has never eaten a fruit. (laughs) Excuse you. Like, this is for packaged food gems. We just went over this. And and this doesn't apply to everything in my life. For example, I thought very consciously today about what I could do to improve the sound quality that we're getting on the recording. Um, Unfortunately, my co-hosts keep hearing me as robots, so it's obviously not working. I made a cup of herbal tea. And I put some lemon juice in it because the acid is supposed to reduce mouth noises. And as I was putting the lemon juice in my tea, I noticed that it expired last month. And I was like, well, there's a story to put in your segment, Ashlyn. (laughs) (laughs) So far, it seems fine. I'm not noticing a lot of mouth noises. That's good. (laughs) You do occasionally sound like R2-D2, though. So in Canada, the best before date must be identified using the words best before and meilleur avant with the date. And the dates are fancy bilingual uh, months. And there's a whole chart of them here, which I found interesting. The year is optional unless it is needed for clarity. (laughs) (laughs) Most of the websites that I found were places like grocery chains or uh, Canada Health type websites, um, but also the their American counterparts. And they were pretty universally urging people like, if you're in doubt, if it's past the date, just throw it out. Uh, one of the words were, uh, never use your nose, eyes, or taste buds to judge the safety of food. If in doubt, throw it out. And I feel like that's pretty extreme. Yeah, like it'll <laughs> depend. You don't want to be eating iffy canned goods, but... Yeah, but if it's like cheese that's been in my fridge, I'm going to inspect it with my eyes and see if it smells funny and make a decision based on that. Yeah, it's it's hard. I remember my microbiome classes and the professor was very much along those lines and his reasoning is sound. It's like by the time your milk smells bad and is curdled, it has been able to infect you for several days. So you were lucky that you didn't get Mm -hmm. infected. If you were immunocompromised or had a gut issue or something, you could have gotten sick off of milk that quote unquote smelled fine. (laughs) Yeah. And with cheese, you, you know that you can't see the fungal growth on it for quite a while before it becomes visible and it's already spreading. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but you're probably going to be fine. Yeah, I am not an advocate for cutting the mold off of cheese, because I know that once you see the mold, the spores are all through it. Like, just don't do it. You can cut it. You need to cut an inch in all directions. But that's so much cheese. Like, I know. if you had that much cheese that you went bad, like, you let go bad, then no. And for my well, most of my life, cheese in my household was the, like, the slabs of, what are they, Cracker Barrel? Or whatever, yeah. And so those things are not an inch yep. thick. So I just figured as soon as mold appeared on the outside, like, you're done. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Laura is always annoyed with me because I have very specific, like, rules for cheese. I will never, like, touch the cheese if it is going back in the fridge. I'll cut off a chunk of cheese and then hold it to shred it, mm-hmm. for example. Uh, yeah, never handle cheese that you're not going to eat with your uh, with your bare hands is my rule. 
what if you bite a chunk directly off the cheese brick? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, Jim's can I hold right it with now. my tongue, Jim? <laughs> so hopefully, the Canadian site about expiry dates does have uh, this paragraph right at the end. Fresh food and produce. Foods that are likely to spoil should be properly stored, and they should be eaten as quickly as possible. Harmful microorganisms that lead to foodborne illness can grow in foods even if they do not appear to be spoiled, or even if they were grown in a field next to some cow manure. Now, it doesn't matter how fresh they are if they were contaminated at the source. That was an addition by Ashlyn, not in fact on the website. No, but this is why we constantly have like listeria and E. coli outbreaks on lettuce and spinach. For sure. So yeah, the point I wanted to make with this segment is that expiry dates are not a good way to figure out whether your food is safe to eat. If you've opened the package of food, uh, the expiry date means nothing. If your food seems fine and it's something that you know has been kept in safe conditions, it's probably, you should probably just go with your instincts and you'll be fine. Unless you're a hypochondriac. Yeah. (laughs) Then maybe get someone else to check it. And this is why, like, immunocompromised people have to think about stuff like this a lot more. Yeah. I will say that one additional use of expiry dates is for rotating Mm -hmm. your food appropriately. So while it may not tell you if the food is entirely still good or it really doesn't even mean that much depending on where you are in the world it will still be printed in relation to when it was produced so especially for your your long storage item things um, that's an easy way to know what is older and we always use the first in first out rule yeah. for, for that's food a good safety. Point. I feel like perhaps a better system would be something like a manufactured on date yeah like you still the the missing context with these things and what people are looking for when they go to best before dates as safety they want to have some idea they don't have the context of well yeah, how long fair. should this be good for right we just don't have that so i think it would be really helpful for especially foods that are likely to spoil quickly in the dairy section of the grocery store have little stickies on the on the thing that says once opened milk lasts for 7 to 10 days yogurt lasts for you know 14 days, etc. Like just very basic things to help people learn that stuff. And I think it does a disservice to consumers using all of these interchangeable words when like every study clearly shows that people don't understand what they mean. Right. People are doing the best they can with the info that they have, which might be very, very limited. And I mean, of course, food waste is a huge problem. And whatever we can do to curb the amount of food waste that is going on, I think is good. Um, I read a couple of statistics. I Again, I feel like this one is pretty off, but I read it in a reputable source. More than 90% of Americans throw out food prematurely, and 40% of the U.S. food supply is tossed unused every year because of food dating. Oh, well, that's a lot of that happens at grocery stores. Yeah. That's true, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's actually pretty accurate. Yeah. So much. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. And and grocery stores, they're not microbiologists. They don't want to be selling bad products because they don't want uh, the customers to be unhappy. They don't want to accidentally cause anything. So they're going to be more cautious, right? Yeah. I mean, I also don't want the 15-year-old who's stocking shelves to have to be in charge of those decisions. That's not fair to them. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, exactly. I read an article from a guy who spent a whole year only eating expired foods. That's a special kind of hell that he put himself through. (laughs) But he did not get sick. Yeah, well, the human body can do some incredible things. There are some YouTubers who will do kind of food dares. And there was one guy who was eating uh, British military rations from the first world war (laughs) oh my god yeah um just cardboard i must have felt still alive he must have felt so bad though like yes oh god it is not it is not a good idea yeah i mean it wasn't a good idea at the time 
Never mind a <laughs> hundred years later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you still hear about people eating hardtack from like the, the Civil War or whatever, but <laughs> I would like to taste some of that Egyptian tomb honey personally. <laughs> <laughs> well, archaeologists ate the bog butter. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Before there was refrigeration, when you had a bog, you could sink your butter into it to keep it from going rancid. They dug them up and, oh, butter. Let's see if it's still good. Was it tangy? It must have been tangy. I think it was tangy. I mean, to be fair, a lot of butter was tangy back then yep. because, like, lack of pasteurization. Yes. It's called cultured butter, gem. It's sophisticated. And also, if you wash your butter in clean water, it goes rancid less quickly. Hmm, that makes sense. Because all of your hand germs aren't in there anymore. Well, and you have to wash off the whey. Yeah, that makes sense. I've done it, and we've done the tests, and it does last a day or so long. <laughs> and that is my segment. All right. Thanks, Ashlyn. That's a really important topic. I know in dietitian circles, pretty much every blogging dietitian has a, a post on this because it is, like we talked about, something that is so confusing and unclear uh, right from the legislation forward, it seems. So thanks. Okay, uh, next up... Jem will be talking to us all about nightshades. And are they deadly, Jem? At least one of them. <laughs> the Solanaceae family of plants contains belladonna, a poisonous plant also known as deadly nightshade. But the greater nightshade family also contains a diverse array of staple crops, including potatoes, tomatoes, eggplant, peppers, and tobacco. Some folks in the uh, alternative health industry have suggested that eliminating nightshades from your diet is important, especially for people with autoimmune diseases like psoriasis, rheumatoid arthritis, or IBD, because the alkaloids found in nightshades supposedly increase the body's inflammatory response. Okay, I just I want to jump in here because I can't stop thinking about it. It would be really weird if the deadly nightshade was not, in fact, deadly. But there are worse plant names out there, so <laughs> you never know. The, uh, the the deadly nightshade is indeed deadly, as are right. several <laughs> other members of the nightshade family. That's, I assume that was the one. So Tom Brady, who even I know is the most hateable quarterback in the NFL, <laughs> avoids nightshades. According to his personal chef, I'm very cautious about tomatoes. They cause inflammation. You hear claims like this uh, a lot from folks in the wellness industry. And this is, how do I say this? Not true. <laughs> sure, some nightshades, like the aforementioned belladonna, are toxic. We don't eat those. When was the last time somebody offered you a devil's snare sandwich or a nice leafy tobacco salad? <laughs> There is no credible evidence to back up the claim that you should eliminate all members of the nightshade family from your diet. So let's dig a little deeper and talk about why. So nightshades contain alkaloids, which are organic nitrogenous compounds that are produced by plants as a defense against insects and other small herbivores. The alkaloids found in the nightshade family include solanine, tropanes, nicotine, capsaicin, and ergine. Ergine, which is a precursor to LSD, is found primarily in decorative nightshades like Morning Glory, while capsaicin is present in chili peppers, it's what makes them spicy, and in the eyes and lungs of peaceful protesters when police are around. Oh! Nicotine, of course, is mostly found in tobacco, although it is technically also present in edible nightshades at doses a million times smaller. But when we talk about nightshades, folks are mostly worried about solanine and tropane. Potatoes, tomatoes, eggplant, and other members of the solanum genus of the Solanaceae family contain solanine in small doses, and tropane, which is a precursor to atropine and cocaine, in even smaller doses. At high doses, solanine can cause diarrhea, vomiting, abdominal pain, headaches, and even hallucinations. 
A high enough dose will kill a person. Solanine has a median lethal dose of 2 to 5 milligrams per, per kilogram of body weight. Since potatoes have a glycoalkaloid concentration of 0.075 milligrams per gram, that means that if you're about my size, you'd have to eat between 2 and 4.5 and kilos, that's uh, 4 to 9 pounds, of potatoes in order to get uh, a dose that's really going to hurt you. And that's at one time, too. We're not talking about, like, if you love potatoes and you eat them every day and you get that much. I mean, mashed potatoes are great and all, but we are talking mashed potatoes by the gallon. And if we're really talking mashed potatoes, you'd actually have to eat much more because the alkaloids are actually found primarily in the skin of the potato uh, and in the eyes. And even if you're a skin-on kind of person, alkaloids are denatured by heat. So if you're not eating literal gallons of raw potatoes, skin and all, in a single sitting, <laughs> you're going to be just fine. What about my <laughs> gallon of potato skins that I eat just Raw, sitting out there on the porch. <laughs> well, everybody else I is would, eating. I the would mashed recommend potatoes. against it, but you do you, Lauren. So, cook your potatoes, remove the eyes, and skin them if you're really worried. Uh, you're going to be just fine. Uh, the one thing that you might want to avoid is green potatoes, and uh, if, if potatoes have lots of eyes, you can always cut them out. But generally speaking, you're going to have to work really hard to get a dose of solanine that's that's going to hurt you. And the thing is, nightshades contain a wide variety of nutrients that are an important part of a healthy diet. In addition, as I'm sure our resident dietitian will attest, the more varied your diet, the better. So artificially constraining your diet by eliminating a huge category of healthy foods generally isn't a good idea. Another claim that you might hear is that nightshades are bad for you because they contain lectins. This is half true. Uh, nightshades, like many other plants, do contain lectins, and there's a lot of hubbub in alt-health circles right now about dietary lectins, with uh, wellness coaches and the like claiming that eliminating lectins will cause weight loss or cure autoimmune diseases. Like solanine and other alkaloids, lectins can serve as a defense mechanism for plants against small herbivores. However, there's no evidence for any health benefits of eliminating lectins from your diet. While a few studies have shown that a diet in raw foods that are extremely high in lectins might be detrimental, you generally don't need to worry. And that's a good thing, because lectins are found not only in the nightshade family, but also in legumes like beans, peanuts, and lentils, and in many grains, including wheat. So if you wanted to eliminate lectins, you're massively limiting your diet. Luckily, there's no reason to do that. Especially... Uh, because, like solanine, lectins are denatured by heat. So, as always, if you have a food-related health concern, it's a good idea to speak to your local registered dietitian to clear things up. Aw, thanks, son. Yeah, I think it's really funny how they go the anti-inflammatory route and that uh, this enormous family of plants uh, has pro-inflammatory effects which it's really funny because when you actually look at dietary patterns that are associated with the lowest inflammatory markers, they tend to be high in things like tomatoes and potatoes. So explain that one, please. <laughs> yeah, anti-inflammation is like concerns about chronic inflammation big right now. Yeah, and, and there's there are reasons for it, but it's it's usually not for the reasons that these types of circles state. Excellent. Thank you, Jim. It was a really thorough overview, and it's always good to really dig a little bit deeper, because this is a claim that I don't hear all that often, but it just keeps popping up on those lists. So, it's my turn to talk about a topic now, and I'm really excited to talk about one of my favorite nutrition myths. Uh, pink salt. You all have heard of pink Himalayan salt, right? We have talked about this a little bit before. I have a big chunk of it right over there. I have a jar of it in my cupboard. Yeah. I do have a good reason, though, before you get too upset. <laughs> I would love to hear. How Is it do because it's pretty? <laughs> okay. It was New Year's Eve. 
and we host a party every New Year's Eve where we do uh, like a cocktail spread and mm-hmm. board games. And we were going to make Caesars, I think, this year. And we went looking for rimming salt. And I swear to God, no one had any. And we decided, well, at least the pink salt will be fancy. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think three or four years later, we still have most of it because we never reach for it. Well, you better check the expiry date on it. <laughs> it is our, oh crap, yeah. we're out of salt salt. <laughs> and we will not be hosting a party this year. Just <laughs> yeah. to remind everybody they're not invited. <laughs> right. Hear that, listeners? Aww. So this is, oh man, this is something that it won't die. And while I don't hear questions about it nearly as often as I used to, which is actually really interesting because over the last couple of years, I've moved into a role where I do a lot of counseling in the uh, cardiac health realm. And so salt and cardiac health, which I'll talk about, is a big thing. I don't get nearly as many questions, but I know that it won't die because pink Himalayan salt has hit the mainstream. It's not just something that you find in your local... Um, natural food store or naturopath office or something like that. Like you walk into any large grocery store and they have at least one type of pink Himalayan salt, usually in some kind of a grinder or something like that. They even have store brands of it now. So it is embedding itself in culture, which if you're looking at it just as salt is fine. I mean, we've had sea salt for forever, actually, and and that's fine. And and it, it is a, a salt. The problem with pink salt, though, is that a lot of people don't actually look at it as just salt. And that's where my blood starts to boil. So I'm going to back up a little bit, and I want to talk about what salt is to begin with. I mean, I think everybody listening to this podcast is familiar with salt in in some way or another. But I want to give a little bit of a background about it so that all of my descriptions make sense. So at its most basic... Salt as we know it is a a mineral or a, a mineral mixture, sodium chloride. Um, so it's two different elements, sodium and chloride, in an approximate balance of 40% sodium and 60% chloride. Okay, so all salts that we think of as eating salt is this. When it comes to human health and disease, it's the sodium portion of the salt that we're most concerned with. So we really don't pay attention to the chloride portion of it. Now, salt has always been essential to humans. Um, Firstly, it is an essential mineral. We do need it in order for proper body functions. Salt has a lot of important functions, namely in fluid balance and also in the nervous system function in the body. And we actually need our, our sodium levels to be pretty tightly controlled. Otherwise, we can have things like we can go into a coma and die and different things like that. So salt is, yes, it is extremely important to human health. We've also used salt as an important thing in our societies and culture as well. Salt was one of the biggest things that allowed us to start preserving food so that we didn't have to constantly rely on fresh foods, uh, which meant that there was food more readily available to more people um, over longer periods of time and and periods of, of uh, you know, seasonal changes or or difficulty hunting or something became a little less important. And that's one of the big reasons that we we were able to advance our societies as we have. So salt is very important. The salt that we eat today comes from two main sources. So some of the salt comes from salt water, either from the ocean or from salt lakes or or salt wells um, underground, um, where the water is then evaporated and we collect the salt from that. Or we mine it from rock salt deposit under the earth. When it comes to salt, while it is very, very important, we actually don't need a huge amount of it every day. So right now, our best estimates is that for most people, getting 1,500 milligrams, so 1.5 grams of sodium a day, will allow us to make sure that our nervous system is functioning properly and our fluid balance is in check and all of that. To think about it in terms of table salt, that's about three quarters of a, a teaspoon of table salt for your entire day will meet all of your salt needs. And this is actually, this is pretty small. 
The, the recommended upper limit for sodium intake is 2300 milligrams, which equals about a teaspoon of salt a day. This upper limit includes sodium from all of the sources. Now, salt as, an, as a food additive has been and continues to be a significant source of sodium in our diets, but some foods naturally contain sodium. For example, um, animal-based foods all have some amount of sodium in them because the animals consume sodium from the ground and other places, and they need it in their bodies to function as well. So dairy and your animal flesh all has some sodium in it as well. And, and that's something that we don't always uh, remember. And then there's some other plant-based sources as well, but animal sources are more so. So that's your primer on salt, because I know you all needed that. But it's important to remember this. I'm going to add an extra note here that for some people, maybe 1,500 milligrams, 2,300 milligrams sounds like a lot of sodium in a day, or thinking, well, I don't use a whole teaspoon of salt. But again, thinking of all food sources, today in Canada, in our food supply, the vast majority of the salt or sodium rather that we eat is added into foods through a variety of food additives containing sodium, some of which is salt. And most of that is done before the consumer ever touches the product. And that includes everything from the bread that we eat, the breakfast cereal that we buy, everything that we have there. So that's a bit of an aside. So a teaspoon sounds like a lot, but not when you think about it coming from a lot of different foods. So then what is pink salt? Well, pink salt is just rock salt that's mined in various parts of the world, and it happens to be pink. A lot of the, the pink salt that's on the market right now comes from Pakistan, from the Himalayas, uh, but there are some brands that are being mined in South America and even Australia, I found out today as well. So it is available around the world. The pink salt is pink because it does contain some other trace elements in it, including potassium and iron oxide. And these are, um, these will give it the color that we have. Um, whereas table salt has these additives removed or in some salt deposits, there are low levels of other minerals in it. So why am I even talking about pink salt? Well, it's because pink salt has that lovely health halo around it. Most people aren't looking at pink salt as just another type of salt to rim your Caesars with, right? Pink salt is a superfood. Didn't you guys know that? I'm, I'm pretty sure you've all heard this, right? Uh-huh. Can Do any of you have any claims or, or things that you've heard about pink salt? I'm just curious before I start listing some. Uh, I remember the claim that having a, a lamp or a candle holder made of pink salt would cause, like, ions to be rebalanced uh cause yeah, an positive in, like, ions. negative ions or that were good for you or something like that yep. uh, in the air that would make you healthier which is just total nonsense <laughs> yep definitely but my pink uh, salt candle holder is very pretty it is lovely and if you if you like the lamps or the candle holders by all means buy them they're just not going to do what they say they do so yeah. The one that I've heard about consuming it is uh, that it has all sorts of extra nutrients and micro minerals and stuff that are beneficial. And I don't know, I feel like that's just another word for contaminants. <laughs> I like it. And, and that is what I'm going to talk about most thoroughly. That's definitely a big one there. They talk about how refined and processed table salt is. Uh, because all refined and processed foods are inherently terrible, don't you know? <laughs> um, and But Himalayan salt is natural and has all of these natural nutrients in it. And that's so that's a big claim that it's way more nutritious. Other claims that are common out there is that it'll help you flush the toxins, you know, all those toxins, got to get them out. So some things will claim that if you drink a salt water solution, a Himalayan salt water solution every day that will help balance your pH levels. No, it won't. <laughs> Other claims are it will regulate blood sugar and hormonal balance. I'm not sure how it'll do that. It'll improve digestion. It'll improve respiratory problems. So you can have like a, a salt inhaler or just sit in a salt cave for a while. Improve is such a weaselly word. Yeah, it, it really is because they can't legally make strong claims yeah. so that it will you know 
actually do a thing. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of claims out there around it. But one of the biggest ones, Ashlyn, like you said, is that, oh, well, it's more nutritious. Uh, so that is something that I would hear a lot. So the reason I want to talk about it today is because a group of researchers out of Australia took it upon themselves to test this claim. So they conducted a study starting in 2018. It was just released uh, in October of 2020. And what they did is they wanted to figure out the, the actual mineral content of the, the Himalayan pink salt that was on the market in Australia at that time. So they went to every grocery store and food seller they could think of and bought every brand of pink salt that was available to them in three different states of Australia. And then they put them through a chemical analysis to see what is in them. With all of this, I'm, I'm going to highlight some of the results from this. And I should say too, they compared uh, the results of these uh, of the Himalayan salt or the pink salt rather to uh, standardized iodized table salt. Unsurprisingly, they did find extra minerals in there. Now, table salt will have a small amount of other minerals, but in the processing of it, it will have a lot of those, like you say, contaminants or impurities removed because food manufacturers want to sell salt and so they don't want to be selling other types of things there especially of unknown amounts so a lot of those other uh, impurities are removed whereas pink salt it is less processed and and for salt really that means like grinding and maybe small chemical process to remove things like iron but it's still salt so pink salt has more of these minerals the most abundant minerals in the pink salt are things like, again, the, the calcium is actually a big one. Potassium, iron is another one, uh, magnesium. These are, these are some of the minerals that occur in the highest amounts in the sodium chloride. Because there are some other minerals in the salt, there is a slightly lower amount of sodium in uh, the pink salt compared to the table salt, which I'm going to get back to in a minute. There are also a lot of non-nutritive minerals in there. So these are minerals that have no known human health need or benefit, and in fact can be dangerous. So for example, some of the samples contain lead and aluminum, sulfur, and silicon. Uh, some of the other heavy metals that were quite worried about, things like cadmium and vanadium, um, there was some concern when they started this study that we might find some of that, but none of the samples that they tested in this study had any discernible amount of those. That was a good thing. So what did they find? Well, I'm going to start off with some good news. Uh, those potentially dangerous minerals in all of the samples except for one, and they had 31 samples, I believe, in all but one, uh, these metals that could have health impacts uh, were below the uh, the upper tolerable limit. So they're within the safe ranges. Um, so that was a good thing. So at least um, there isn't uh, inadvertent poisoning happening from some of these products. So when you say that they're within the safe ranges, that's assuming somebody has a normal amount of like, you know, 1.5 grams or whatever of this pink salt. So they standardized the ranges of these different minerals to everything to milligrams per kilo. And so all of these minerals have um, ranges, like for a certain amount of food product or whatever, you can have up to this much aluminum or whatever else. So when they standardized it to those ranges, I'd have to read the study more closely again, but they, they followed like the, the food manufacturers and, and safe food uh, production guidelines for those types of things. So yeah, they made sure to standardize it to, to those same ranges so that it all made sense. So that was uh, helpful. Now, the pink salt varied widely in its content of other minerals. So for example, calcium was the most abundant mineral other than sodium and chloride in these pink salts, with a mean of about um, 2,695 milligrams per kilo. But the range of the amount of sodium was huge. So it ranged from about 500 milligrams or per kilo all the way up to 5,700 milligrams per kilo. So depending on where your brand of salt and where exactly it was from, it could be very high in calcium or, or not at all. And this was more or less true for all of the different minerals. So yes, it, it does have more of those 
those minerals in it. Now, it might be sounding like I'm validating what Ashlyn had said, but we need to look at this food as salt and how we use this food here. We also need to talk about what table salt looks like. So let's talk about sodium first. So because the Himalayan salt has other minerals in it, by necessity, the sodium is a little bit lower, right? Because it's not pure sodium chloride the same way that uh, the table salt is. Pink salt, on average, had um, about 394 milligrams per gram of sodium in it versus the table salt at 427 milligrams per gram. So that might sound like a lot of difference, but if you're looking per teaspoon, we're talking about 1,970 milligrams per teaspoon versus 2,135 milligrams. So we're less than 200 milligrams difference here. In the context of a daily intake, that's not actually that significant. We also have to think about how much people are actually eating in terms of sodium as well. So while the, the adequate intake is... 1,500 milligrams a day, the upper limit is 2,300 milligrams a day. In Canada, most people are eating somewhere between 2,700 and 3,700 milligrams of sodium every day. Many adults are getting much more than the upper limit of sodium. So maybe switching to pink salt would be lower in sodium. But again, that average is slightly lower than table salt, but that also varied quite a lot. So maybe your brand of, of pink salt is actually higher in sodium than the white table salt. And the difference is so insignificant. If you want to make an actual change, there's got to be better changes. Right. Like I am a big proponent of small changes here, but this is a really insignificant kind of change. When you think of the context of diet, and this is also assuming that you are getting all of your sodium from the day from this pink salt. So most of your sodium for the day is actually coming from other foods, whether it's natural sources or other sources there. So if you're using a teaspoon of salt in addition to all of that, you're actually getting way more sodium than you need. Like you're not solving any problems with this. Now let's talk about these nutritive minerals, right? But, but, but the calcium, right? It's so much higher in calcium. And compared to table salt, it really is. So your average white table salt will, dep again, depending on where you are and what brand you have, in this study, it was about 393 milligrams of calcium per gram, which turns out to be about two milligrams of calcium per teaspoon. So white table salt is very low in calcium. The pink salt turned out to be about, the on average, 13.5 milligrams of calcium per teaspoon. Um, which is about the same amount of calcium that's in one tablespoon of cream cheese. And cream cheese, just so everybody is aware, it is a dairy product. It is incredibly low in calcium compared to all the other dairy products. If you're going to go eat your Tim Hortons bagel, which has definitely two tablespoons of cream cheese, you're already getting double the calcium that this whole teaspoon of Himalayan salt will get you. So again, if you're trying to increase your calcium intake, there are other things that you could do. You'd have to eat so much Himalayan salt to get a significant amount of calcium because most adults, the recommendation for adults here in Canada is a, is a thousand milligrams a day. So you would have to eat tablespoons of Himalayan salt to make a dent in that thousand milligrams a day. That's a very upsetting thought. That's an... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is, right? because you could eat a couple servings of dairy or non-dairy fortified alternatives and be halfway to your goal, right? Eat some green leafy vegetables and get 100 milligrams per serving. And I mean, yes, we can talk about bioavailability and things like that. That's for a different podcast on another day. <laughs> but it still doesn't mean that the amount of calcium in your Himalayan salt is really going to make a difference at the end of the day, especially if you're only using it a dash here and a dash there. So as I've alluded to, or said outright, the risks of the excess sodium consumption far outweigh any potential benefits of these tiny amounts of other minerals. There are other ways to get magnesium, potassium, calcium in their diet, and they generally involve eating some plants. Just eat <laughs> plants. Your pink salt isn't the way that you're going to do it, okay? Now, some people might say, but, but, but it's natural and table salt has additives. Okay. I'm not a big fan of super processed foods. I think there's too many of them, 
but I'm not against food processing because it is important. So let's talk a little bit about why table salt has additives. First and foremost, first of all, like we talked about in a recent episode where I talked about food fortification, iodine is one of the main things that's added to a lot of table salts here, at least in Canada and in many parts of the world. And we do that because of the risk of iodine deficiency in a lot of especially marginalized populations. Because of the presence of iodine, there will also generally be some sort of sugar in it as well. The reason for this is that sugar acts as a reducing agent that makes sure that the iodine remains stable and in the salt and does not uh, become a vapor and leave the salt. So it's part of that whole best before food practice kind of thing that you were talking about, Ashlyn. You'll see something like potassium iodide as the iodine agent, and then you'll probably see dextrose or glucose or something like that as the reducing agent. And then the other items on the list are anti-caking agents. And this is really for a food quality thing. It really means that it's going to keep the salt from becoming one big hard lump in the box there so that you can keep using it and that it comes out uniformly so that your recipes aren't overly or under salty. Especially in places that, unlike Manitoba, have moisture in the air. <laughs> exactly. Now, some people will get worried about anti-caking agents and things like that, and that's usually due to fears around aluminum and those types of things. Again, that is for another podcast another day. These agents are regarded as safe. I'm not going to worry about those right now. And again... And you've already mentioned that pink salt has aluminum in it, right? Well, exactly, right? Like, it, that's exactly it. Like, it naturally has some aluminum. Um, some of the thoughts, too, are that some of the reasons that some of these minerals are in the pink salt is because of ground contamination in places that have been rapidly industrializing and have don't have a lot of environmental uh, regulations. So some of these minerals are actually seeping into the salt from what we're doing to the land around it, which is interesting. So no, we don't need to be worried about table salt and its quote unquote scary additives for that. They're just basic things. And in some cases, they can actually help prevent nutrient deficiencies. As much as I've been saying this for years, this study really showed that pink salt is salt. The amounts of these other minerals are so minute that unless you are eating nothing but a teaspoon of salt a day, which, boy, do you have other problems at that point, you're going to get those nutrients in other places. Or there are far better ways and tastier, I would say, to get those nutrients through whole foods, in which cases you'll get other nutrition as well. So pink salt is just salt. If you like the way it looks, if you like the way it tastes, use it. If you like the way that your salt lamp lights your room, use it. Is it going to cure your asthma? Absolutely not. Is it going to cure your digestive problems? No. Is it going to raise your blood pressure? If you use a lot of it, yes. I'm curious how this uh, pink salt craze compares to the earlier sea salt craze. Yeah. I, you know, sea salt was already a specialty but normal product by the time I became aware of it. Like, it was sort of a, a fancy thing. We never used it in my house growing up. Um... But it, yeah, it was a fancy kind of thing. So I wonder if it followed a lot of the same trend. I'm sure there was some of it, but with pink salt coming of age in the age of data and the age of, of online activity, I think it's probably far worse. I would be positive that sea salt always had a small following of people who claimed its health benefits and that, but it's just so much more amplified with the pink salt now. And it's basically the same thing, right? Like it has a slightly different color maybe a slightly different flavor profile because it has slightly different adulterants. Yeah, in it. yeah, like it's, yeah, it, it's just not like it, those extra minerals just aren't removed from it. Do they make claims that it tastes better? Like, because that's not something I feel like I remember seeing much of. For pink salt, that's not usually what I see. I mean, I, I won't say yeah. definitively, but I it's it's really health, health and like aura related <laughs> claims. <Yeah. laughs> I, I've seen that taste claims for sea yeah. salt. But yeah. Not, uh, yeah. yeah. And I mean, that's true. Table salt and sea salt do taste different. Sure. Yep. I was curious. Um, I did a cursory um, internet search and I couldn't find anything on it. How we saw with the quinoa craze, how it devastated the crops in Peru and Bolivia, where people actually relied on it as sustenance. Are we seeing this for the pink salt craze in Pakistan or anywhere else? Or because it's a rock, is it more plentifully available? 
Yeah. I, I think that it's, I, I think it's more the latter. I mean, I really, I'm not a researcher on this. I really have not been in the field. I, I'm just throwing some conjecture out here, but I would, I would say that it is uh, going to be more like, you know, it's just available there. It probably opened up a new industry because, or it might mean that people actually get paid a little bit faster even because maybe they would have mined the salt anyway, but then it had to go through processing to make it white and, and remove the impurities and that, and now they can just ship it as is maybe. That, I, that's when something. I did a Google about pink salt, all I got was a whole bunch of whack. Oh yeah, it's 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 bad. Like <sighs> I haven't I haven't looked it up for a long time, but I had to just to remind myself all of the claims that people are making for it. So that's uh yeah. That's that's pink salt. It is still just salt. If you like it, you can use it, but it's salt. And nothing more. You know, we've talked about a lot of nutrition myths, and boy, are there more than what we've even talked about tonight. I could go into more, but I want to keep everybody really engaged in that. So at this point, I think I will switch it up a little bit, and we will move on to our Something Nice segment for this month. Because that is always something that helps us uh, feel a little bit good about some of the things going on. Because boy, has it been a month, right? Uh-huh. With COVID and the U.S. election, even though we're not in the U.S., we still, we hear about it. It's everywhere. So it affects us. It affects us. us. It does. Yeah. Bit. So, so my lovely co-hosts, let's hear about something nice in your lives over this past month. I'll go first. I purchased for myself an iPad and the fancy Apple Pencil, and I have been learning how to uh do some like digital painting and drawing and it's really calming and i'm learning a lot from different tutorials online and it's been really good that sounds really fun that sounds lovely that's excellent and do you have additional plans for this uh drawing or anything or it's just an another fun activity <laughs> if i invest in a printer that can actually do printer uh, sticker paper, which I discovered ours cannot because it like goes around the bend and it just jams. Mm. Maybe offering custom printed stickers in addition to the stuff that my Cricut can do would be pretty cool. Cool. But I really just wanted to learn how to be a 2D artist, which is not something I've ever done. Like my drawing is extremely rudimentary. <laughs> <laughs> so and following tutorials for now until I can fake it to make it. Awesome. Yeah, it's never too late to learn something new like that. That's wonderful. Cool. That's that's really lovely, especially right now. <laughs> I have uh, a couple. So um, I don't know. I I went back and forth on a few things, but okay, yeah, Hades is is really good. I mentioned it offhand uh, last month when I was playing Super Mario sixty four, but uh, I got into Hades and uh, yeah, it's real good. Um, highly recommended. Feels good to play. Uh, the story is great, and uh, yeah, so give that game a shot if you're if you're on the fence. It's on the Switch. It's really good. Uh, I also recently finished the novel Squeeze Me by Carl Hiasen, and it's uh, great. It might also be a little bit easier to uh, read uh, with the results of the election finally in. Excuse me, is his last name he awesome? He awesome. Uh it's uh, Carl uh Hiasen, H I A A S E N. Yeah, I I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation, but he is a Floridian uh who writes novels that have a uh, strong ecological focus, uh focusing on the ecology of Florida. And this uh I I believe is the eighth in kind of a loose series that all they all kind of feature one character who kind of wanders through them, but he's a minor character who just always shows up in them, but he's not ever the focal character. The focal characters are all like single characters. So you can come in at any point, leave at any point in the series. I haven't read any of the other books in the series, but uh, Squeeze Me is great. It is about a Trump supporter who is an aged Trump supporter who is swallowed by a Burmese python. Uh, and the country club that she's a member of tries to cover it up because they don't want bad publicity. <laughs> and the president gets involved uh, and the hero of the novel is a kick-ass uh, wildlife expert. She's great. Uh, it's yeah, it's fun. It's it's pretty good. 
I enjoyed it. Great. That's, that novel does sound like a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you'd like I it. I think I remember hearing about it when it came out, like, because there was a whole big thing because it was, you know, the Trump thing. And yeah. Yeah. The, the novel coyly does not use his name at any mm. point, but it is incredibly obvious that, uh, that it's Trump. Yeah. So that's, those are mine. Nice. Lauren, what's your something nice lately? I'm not sure if if we had our new cat when we were recording the podcast last time. Yes. Our new cat our new cat is a giant cuddler. Aww. <laughs> um, we're finding out things that aren't so nice. Like, it took until we, we had her for a few days before we realized, hmm, this baby doesn't have any claws. Aww. Aww. Yeah. But she is a gigantic love sponge, and I found out today that she either really doesn't like when I'm playing piano, or she just doesn't like when hands are doing something that are not petting her. So she was reaching <laughs> up at the piano and grabbing at my hands and yelling at me. He's like, no, come cuddle. Are you sure she doesn't just want to be a piano cat? I tried. I tried to put her in. <laughs> she is... What was she, Ashlyn? Like 15, 17 uh, pounds? Wow. 17 and a half pounds, as far as we can estimate. She is enormous and like solid. <laughs> yeah. And she puts all her weight onto one paw. And But she's a cuddler. And our other cat, Lexa, is expressing her displeasure. <laughs> How diplomatic. <laughs> but they haven't gotten any major dust-ups, so. Well, that's good. Yeah, it's it's exciting to have another cuddle baby in the house. Lexa's not very cuddly mm-hmm. except at bedtime. Yeah. She's yeah, that's me. nice. <laughs> <laughs> We're not allowed to fuel Jem's hatred of cats. Oh, I should mention right now, Jem, Kira says she wants a kitten for Christmas. Jem, <laughs> do you no. like any animals? Like... <laughs> Would you prefer to have a dog or something? No, dogs Whoa. would be worse. Okay, I didn't think so. I figured that, but I was at curious. least cats will leave me alone some of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Although you are sleeping in Snowflake's room right now, so yeah. Aww, I'm in isolation from the rest oh, of the no. family right now. So, do you? Did you get exposed for sure? Or? I got a notification from the app, but yeah, like I, I. I definitely got exposed probably multiple times uh, at school because it keeps running through the med students. Yeah. And because of the way the, you know, like we're wearing PPE uh, in almost all cases. But, you know, the the day before I got the exposure notification, uh, I was like in somebody's throat uh uh, you know, examining their oropharynx. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so they did. They weren't wearing a mask at that point because they that would make it very hard to examine their oropharynx. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, uh, similarly, works. like I was using an ophthalmoscope uh, to you know look at somebody's retinal disc, and that meant that both of us had to have our protective uh, like face shields off. Mm-hmm. So, I'm gonna do a something nice for myself now. Yay. But first, Jem, what were you thinking of for me? <laughs> That TV show you've been very much enjoying that we've been watching? We've both been enjoying it? So, my something nice, uh, as listeners will know, I can almost never think of something nice at the time. But Jem just reminded me of something. Uh, the show What We Do in the Shadows, if you have not watched it, it is phenomenal. It is mm-hmm. so good. It is just, it's just so good. And I, I love it. And I'm so glad that it has a second season and I hope that there will be many more. So in the few moments that we've had to watch TV together, we have watched that and that's been a lot of fun. The movie was a hoot. I haven't dug into the TV show. The movie was super fun and the show is is really good. It has its own elements which make it really fun. Um so it just yeah, it it complements the movie and but it goes its own way and it's it's really good. For listeners who are not familiar, What We Do in the Shadows is a mockumentary TV series on FX based on a mockumentary film that portrays a film crew following around a coven? I don't know if that's the correct no. uh, it, a collective noun, but uh, a group of vampires uh, who all live in a house in together. In the modern day. Uh, the original, in the modern day. 
uh, and it is very funny. Uh, the original featured, and I believe was directed by Taika yep. Waititi, uh, who has gone on to obviously do lots of phenomenal things. And this one is made by the same creative team, and Taika Waititi is involved as well. Uh, it features different vampires, but uh, it, I highly recommend. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun, and I appreciate that. Another something nice for me is that a few weeks ago I got new running shoes, and I'd been in need of these for a while. And I know it sounds like such a basic thing, but I'm I'm inordinately excited about them. Uh, I got a really great deal on them too, which makes it even more exciting. But they're just, they're fun and they're snazzy and it makes me want to walk everywhere all the time. And I even went on a couple of runs with Jem, which I generally don't run anymore. So I was willing to do that because of fun new shoes. So it's it's really cool how sometimes just like a little thing changes everything you want to do in a day to do that kind of stuff. So what are we talking about next month, Ashlyn? I would like to talk about stories of humans doing things at the limit of human ability. Well, thank you everyone for joining me tonight. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for indulging me in talking about nutrition. I have some more food-related topics that I'd like to talk about in the coming months. Take over anytime. <laughs> anytime. All right. <laughs> Take care, everyone. Good night. Good night. Good night. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble, with mix and tech production by Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Lauren Bailey. Life. Don't talk to me about life. So, my turn to talk about things now, and I am going. Oh, Lauren. No, that. Was oh, just okay. Me I was like, oh, oh. Did you have? Did you do a segment and we didn't know? Oh God. Oh, I'm sorry. No. <laughs> that was just me applauding when in a soundless environment. <laughs> right, I see. Right. No, that sorry. that's all good. That's all good. Okay. Next time on Life, the Universe, and Everything Else, butts.